Welcome to the Fourth Watch Podcast, a curated conversation with some of the most interesting voices in the media. I'm Steve Krakauer. Today, we pull back the curtain on how the media sausage is made with Arin Carmone of New York Magazine. This is episode 22. From Weinstein to Epstein, there's been an incredible Me Too moment, not just in our culture, but in the media too. And Arin Carmon has been at the center of chronicling it. We talk about that, plus the friendship between RBG and Scalia, and more. But we start with Charlie Rose. I want to start with uh, November 2017. And uh, you and your co-author in the Washington Post published a story that really upended the media world. Uh, and about Charlie Rose, it was uh, t- uh, headlined, eight women say Charlie Rose sexually harassed them with nudity, groping, and lewd calls. Um, and this really started the ball rolling in a couple different areas that I want to get to in, in a variety of ways about really, I think, the media coverage over the last few years. Um, but one quote from that really stood out to me. Uh, and it was from uh, a producer who had worked with Charlie Rose, a, a female producer who worked with him, Yvette Vega, um, for a very long time. Um, and her quote to you was, I should have stood up for them. I failed. It is crushing. I deeply regret not helping them. Um, and I don't know. I, I, I went back and read that as I was preparing for this. And it, and it, I, I want to know kind of where you, what it was like reporting that story, but also in in kind of the the tentacles that come from reporting a story like that, when you start to really kind of dig into how it's not obviously just a single person, but what, what you're starting to uncover. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot there, of course. Um, thank you for being such a close reader of the story. Um, for me, that story began in 2010 when I worked at Jezebel and got a tip about Charlie Rose's conduct towards people who worked for him and tried to report it. And I think it was the combination of, you know, people who were involved in the story not being ready to talk about it. My inexperience doing that kind of story at the time, um, the kind of limited niche uh, I had to, to pursue long-term investigative stories. And the world also had not yet blown up in the way that it did in the wake of reporting on Harvey Weinstein um, by incredible journalists in the New Yorker and the New York Times. And so for lots of different reasons, and these are all my guesses, um, I had to put the story aside. But after those stories that I mentioned with Harvey Weinstein, um, of course, there were lots of other stories that came out that really... um, laid bare things that had been, some of them had been gossiped about, they had been um, whispered about, uh, but all of a sudden there was a kind of rigorous set of kind of rules on how to report on these stories. Uh, What kind of evidence did you need? How many people did you need on the record? Um, How could you structure such a story? Uh, And actually a big part of it was Uh, stories that involved powerful men, which most of these were stories about powerful men abusing their power one way or another, usually with sexual misconduct in the mix, but not only sexual misconduct, sometimes just, you know, workplace abuse. Um, Harassment. Yeah, yeah, that these that these stories um, had a kind of, uh, uh, I, I think, reframing. Because there was, I think, a reticence before that some of this was private conduct or that some of it was just what do you expect, like the casting couch. And so 
to even have a, a language or vocabulary that this is the kind of story that a mainstream news organization like the New York Times, the New Yorker, or the Washington Post would pursue. I think that was a paradigm change. And so um, when that all started happening, I kept thinking about the Charlie Rose story. And I thought, like, I can't believe I just let that one go. I really thought that I had done everything that I could to report it at the time. But I had also gotten a lot more experience in the intervening seven years. And so and, and I, at the time, I was freelancing um, on a sort of regular contract basis for the Washington Post Outlook section. And I... Uh, Pretty was pretty sure that a freelancer uh, on an investigative piece was kind of unlikely to to be welcomed in house at the Washington Post because yeah. of course they have so many distinguished uh, investigative reporters on staff. Well, more to come um, on that also. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but but you know this was actually an incredible professional relationship at least when it came to the first story. Um, I, so I I actually asked my editor if it was something that that they would be interested in, and actually in a matter of minutes, if you remember this time in the media, there was this like kind of breathless sense of who's next. And some journalistic organizations had, you know, the New York Times, I think, had created almost like a sub department to pursue these stories. And so, so I don't know what the, the Washington Post did the incredible Roy Moore reporting and they won the Pulitzer for and they you know, changed the course of that election. But I think there was the sense of who do you got, you know? Yeah. And so I think that was one reason why I got a call back very fast asking me to come to Washington. And even though it had been in the works for seven years, um, things moved very quickly from there. And I think it helped that I had already made contact with a lot of these individuals before I went to the Washington Post. Um, but the first person that I called who had been the original tipster said to me when they picked up the phone, I've been waiting for you to call. Wow. Years so it was later. a pretty fast track from there to um, the front page of the Washington Post and, and, and Charlie Rose being fired from his various television gigs. Right. Yeah. And that, that came that came pretty fast. Um, you mentioned some of these roadblocks and I want to play uh, a little clip of your acceptance speech because the, the report that we're talking about won an award, won a mirror award at my alma mater, Syracuse uh, University. Um, so I want to play this and then I want to talk about it. It has powerful friends that will ask, is this really worth ruining the career of a good man? what one woman says, what four women say, what 35 women say. Indeed, the system is sitting in this room, some more than others. The system is still powerful men getting stories killed that I believe will someday see the light of day. After all, it took seven years from the time that I found out about Charlie Rose until Amy's and my story was published. The system is sitting in this room. I mean, I, I wasn't in the room that day, but I, man, I can only imagine what the uh, the vibe was like. You know, that started. Uh, I would imagine cheering you on as you walked to the podium, and then to get that, and and it's interesting, you know, because it, it it raised a couple things for me. I mean, it made me think of of obviously, like you're talking about, some of these the 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 elements that that led to this story not getting published until when it did. Um, mm -hmm. And I want to get into some of those. But but the idea that even simultaneously while this is happening and this idea of like, you know, I know allyship is a big word these days, but like, you know, that that you may have that in a in a certain way, but also have these roadblocks still existing in the same business, in the same newsrooms. Yeah, I mean, I, I in no way want to minimize that first wave of stories that came out, but in a way they were the low-hanging fruit, 
right? They were the egregious actors who had, and again, they involved heroic feats of reporting. But Charlie Rose, for example, you know, it took seven years, but we we did a follow-up story where we added 27 additional vetted allegations. So the... And and many of them, you know, absent a statute of limitations were arguably criminal. So, uh, you know, there there were stories that were clear cut from a perspective of somebody who might be skeptical of these stories. And um, then after that, I think, was the really tough part, because I I think if I understand where your questions are coming from, um, the, the next wave of stories was about complicity and systemic questions. And so that that was the big picture of what I was saying that day. And God, I have not heard the sound from that before. And it, I can I can hear the terror in my voice. Um, it was a very scary moment for me because I was burning a bunch of bridges, but it was really important to me to, to do so. Um, it, my integrity is all I have. Um, and so, you know, there, there was a, a broader big picture backstory to my remarks that day. And then there's the the sort of literal factual set of uh, circumstances, which is that following the publication of the Charlie Rose story in the Washington Post, November 2017. Um, so that story, all of the allegations we had were from people who worked for the Charlie Rose show that aired on PBS. And subsequently, we wanted to report on Charlie Rose's various CBS gigs, right. which are, you know, his show was had a lot of prestigious people, but it was a relatively tiny operation. Then this mega corporation had had him host his their morning show, as a, had been a correspondent on their flagship show, sixty minutes. Um, and even while we were in the like two and a half weeks or whatever insane period of time that we reported the first story, from the time that I met Amy to the time we published our story, I think it was two and a half weeks. Um, the the rumors about 60 minutes not involving Charlie's conduct were even ones that kind of floated my way during the course of the first story. And they were rumors, again, allegations around the legendary executive producer of 60 Minutes, Jeff Fager, and the culture at 60 Minutes, uh, which it was alleged was hostile to women. And at that time, we were really focused on Charlie Rose. And I was like, okay, well, that might be the next story, but I can't even think about this right now. We knew that other reporters were working on it. And that also helped us inside the Washington Post get published really quickly because there was competition. Um, but when it was over, they asked me if I would stay and work on some of the tips that we had gotten uh, when it came out. And long story short, we wind up, wound up simultaneously pursuing allegations against Charlie Rose that went back decades, some of them at CBS, some of them other places, in addition to the culture at 60 Minutes for women, not only limited to to Charlie Rose's conduct, but also allegations that Jeff Fager had harassed or bullied uh, women at CBS. And he had also been the chairman of CBS News. Um, So his kind of aggressive, in, in my view, I mean, like, again, all of these stories involve so many complex facts, so many twists and turns. But at the point that Amy and I went to um, Cipriani to, which ironically had been a place that people like Charlie Rose and Harvey Weinstein like to hang out. <laughs> right. So that part was, was it, also really was weird. That Suddenly or, we're that at or this... Michaels, you, 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 were, you were, <laughs> could run into someone. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I think it's a place known for, I mean, please don't sue me here, but I think it was a place where a lot of creeps used to hang out. Um, so, so to be there, um, and then shortly before Amy and I, we were nominated, we didn't know if we were going to win, but shortly before, uh, this event, the mirrors, um, that we were potentially going to win an award, uh, it was announced that Jeff Fager and 60 Minutes, which I think were that year celebrating their 50th anniversary, um, would would receive a kind of like lifetime achievement or something similar to a lifetime achievement award. So it was guaranteed that they would be on stage. Yeah. And at that point, I want to say, so this would have been June, about a month earlier, the Washington Post had declined to publish allegations against Jeff Fager and the story that ran. And so we are coming to this award event knowing that, and you can argue about whether it was the right decision, but knowing that there's somebody there who is getting a Lifetime Achievement Award and all of the staff too, who actively waged a campaign to kill investigative reporting in the Washington Post that implicated their conduct, but they are gonna be celebrated as journalists. So again, these are investigative reporters who successfully killed allegations against them, including one that had a, a settlement, settlement documents we had in our possession right. um, after allegations of sexual assault. Well, and so yeah. the rage that I felt, the hypocrisy that I saw um, was why when I said the system was sitting in the room, I was actually being pretty literal. <laughs> right. About about the, those at, at CBS. Yeah. And, you know, you look at the timing of it. Um, in May of 2018, you did publish the story with 107 current and former uh, CBS employees. Talked to them over a five month period. Um, you know, Jeff Fager was one of the, the key elements of that story, even, you know, though, you know, elements also were killed, as you say, um, to it. And, and I will say, you know, just from the Jeff Fager side, um, I know he has his defense as well, excuse me, as well. Uh, Laura Logan uh, has been on the record uh, defending him. And, and obviously all of these is, is complicated and one doesn't invalidate the other. Um, but what was really interesting to me was in addition to what, you're, what you covered about CBS uh, in that story in, the, in May 2018 was a year later in a story called What Was the Washington Post Afraid Of, uh, writing about the publication of that story, um, which, you know, a little bit inside baseball, but I'm fascinated by this stuff. So now you're at New York Magazine and you write mm -hmm. a story about kind of the the coverage and the publication of this story. Um, and uh, Marty Baron, I think, was the key element of that story. Um, longtime, uh, you know, really illustrious editor of the Boston Globe and then at the Washington Post. Um, now he's retired. Uh, but but his, you know, efforts in, I don't want to say de outright, um, you know, killing elements of the story, but but certainly not going to bat for the reporting that was already kind of about to be in the paper, you know, on the Washington Post website. So what was the process of going from publishing it, you know, in May of 2018 to writing about it in April of 2019? Yeah, I mean, there were a lot of twists and turns, but it boils down to the fact that Subsequently, much, if not all, of what we were going to report in that May 2018 story was published by Ronan Farrow in The New Yorker. So many, although not the settlement documents that we had, of the allegations were in a kind of part two of Ronan's piece on Les Moonves about, you know, and he kind right, of tied it right. together as broader cultural problems at, at CBS. But he included a lot of stuff about culture at CBS, which frankly, Marty Barron would even aside from the specific allegations about Jeff Baker, Marty Barron objected to even as a premise 
to say that, you know, that there were people who really found it to be a hostile environment for women. Um, and there was a there was a meeting in which he said to it was described to me. I was we were uninvited at the last minute, but there was a meeting in which he said to one of the very few female editors at the top, "What if somebody wrote a piece like this about the Washington Post?" And that woman said, "Then I would go on the record and say I've had a good experience here." But we were we had this kind of um, pressure campaign from everybody from. Leslie Stahl to Jeff Baker himself to, you know, calling Marty, people he had worked with in the past, uh, beating down his door, claiming, like making allegations that we were unfair. And then it was followed by legal threats, just an enormous amount of pressure. And I, I think that, you know, I, I, I speculated a little bit about this in my piece, but I think people can also draw their own conclusions from the set of facts. We reported and reported and reported over the course of months. Each time there were there were like dozens of edits, dozens of edit, half dozen editors, I think, involved in this. We got to a point where, where they were prepared to publish and more legal threats came and they backed down. They took everything out. And so it was hard for me to draw any other conclusion other than the fact that they, you know, that the people who were who did not want to be reported on in this way, one, that they managed to kill a story because they made it the price too high. They made the the sort of risk calculation too high. And I honestly, I I can't remember exactly why I started writing about it, but I think I was just still so disappointed. And I felt like what Me Too had been about, at least from the journalistic perspective, was about transparency. And it was about understanding how powerful people operate in the world. And without understanding how powerful people actually succeed in getting stories about themselves killed, even after the reckoning of of Me Too, and even with a journalist who has published incredible, I'm talking about Marty Baron, a journalist who has covered, who has bravely stood up and published lots of really risk-taking journalism, including about Me Too, but that there was this blind spot. And I, I don't think I mentioned this, but the, the Washington Post and, and 60 Minutes were in the middle of a partnership and reporting on opioids. So there were all kinds of hard to avoid conflicts of interest too with people who had directly worked together. So anything, you know, your media reporting on media will implicate this, but in this case, it was even more direct. And so I think for me, that interest of people telling stories of what they had experienced if there was a broader public interest at stake I felt that that was a standard that I needed to hold myself, even if it meant, um, you know, even if it meant people would disagree about the conclusions, even if it meant that people would, um, you know, think that I had betrayed confidential meetings, which every journalist relies on people to to talk about confidential things that happens if they're they're trying to do anything that isn't stenography. by the time that I published that piece, Jeff Fager was out at CBS having sent a threatening text message to a CBS reporter who was following up on Ronan Farrow's reporting in The New Yorker. And there was also an investigation at CBS by lawyers. It's pretty remarkable. Um, I mean, he, he may have survived at, at CBS if not for sending the text to his yeah. to his own employee, which is sort of Right. Amazing. I mean, and, and, and to some, but, you know, there was a lot that was uh, turned up. The New York Times reported on what the lawyers had found in the investigation. And 
it, it largely, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, it validated everything we were going to report. So imagine my frustration to read this in the New Yorker instead of in the Washington Post under my and Amy's byline. Yeah. As a journalist, you don't want to get beat. Right, right. And also, we spent months gaining the the trust of sources. So to then say, sorry, actually, uh, the Washington Post is not behind our reporting. Um, yeah. That was crushing to me. And I felt like I wanted to make public explanation of what had happened as a way to really understand how journalism works. What role did Donald Trump play in the media's Me Too coverage? That's coming up. We talk about like how the sausage gets made and it's in that in the case of the Washington Post and CBS News and 60 Minutes, there was a literal partnership. But so much of this is not is not as literal. And I know you touch on this, but like it it seems like there's always been um, a, a, a layer of untouchability and and it part of it is just that that people are are friends and people in media and in politics and and sources and you go to the same you know kids go to the same school and you go to the same parties and it literally is i mean i i i talk about the acela media the new york dc i think we had a little back and forth on twitter about it at one point um but i really think of it as like this beltway of protection for so long um that at some point it did break but it but for a long time it was unbreakable um and i wonder what you think it is that did it uh, because you can sort of trace it to Donald Trump going into the White House um, with whether it was because of that or or whether like a literal cause and effect or if it just happened to to coincide. Uh, but I wonder what you think of of Donald Trump getting elected, um, knowing the sort of, you know, me too baggage he himself has um, and the idea, OK, you know, if this can happen. Yeah. OK, he's president. But the you know, the figures that for so long were protected in the media uh, are not going to be protected anymore. Yeah, I mean, you know, you've introduced a lot of interesting ideas there. And I, I want to start with the notion that there was silence around this because of the Acela media. So, to, although I have been lucky to be employed by a lot of different news organizations, to the extent that that exists, I, I, I am not part of it. Um, but I also wouldn't overstate its role, right? Like, I think that it's definitely... It definitely matters in sort of politics beat reporting, that kind of insidery, you know, who's my friend, friends with communications representatives, that sort of thing, like a sort of club, maybe sure. people who cover corporate media. Um, but I have always tried to be as independent as possible while also still making a living. Um, yeah. And I, I, my independence is really important to me. And it was one of the reasons that I um, wrote that article because I felt that you know my integrity as a journalist belongs to me and not to any organization. And luckily New York Magazine was incredibly supportive and I'm on staff at New York Magazine and they backed me and it was wonderful. New York it was is, actually, is one yeah. of, is, it's actually the only publication I currently subscribe to the print edition of. Um, I think it's great. And, and they, you know, I'm gonna get to some other stories like Andrew Cuomo later. They, they have generally, I think, stood out as, as pretty uh, objectively clear-eyed in a lot of this. Thank you. I mean, look, I don't think, you know, at the time that I was working on that story, uh, Adam Moss was the editor of New York Magazine. He had worked with Marty at the New York Times Magazine. And I think he really thought hard about whether this was the right thing to do. And he stood by it and he wrote that headline. What was the Washington Post afraid of? And that was his last day wow. as editor at New York Magazine. And on a Friday, Friday at 6 p.m., he was like, here's the headline. <laughs> I don't, I think, at, you know, having had some PTSD from our story in the Washington Post being repeatedly delayed and then killed, I had some doubt that that story would even run. And then 
at 6 p.m. right before his goodbye party. Adam writes the headline and it's like, mic drop, literally. And <laughs> Monday, David Haskell's first day of the story runs. Um, wow. So, so... Okay, so this this notion of insider outsider, like I'm not saying that I am a total outsider in any way, but I do think that's not how I've seen my career. But I also think more broadly that I I actually don't believe that these stories were suppressed because people were friends. I think it was a confluence of, um, frankly, men being in charge and protecting each other. So I see it more as a, as a gender thing than a sort of cultural or socio political protection and they just did not think that these were newsworthy activities um and then i think i think when people started to report on um the elements of me too stories that sound a little bit like boy investigative stories like settlements multi-million dollar settlements at fox news for example um as opposed to seeing, you know, so that gave it a kind of concrete thing to report on. But, it, you know, it was two women and, and one gay man, I guess, that, that, that really broke the stories, that, that broke the rest of the stories. I always think that there is a real causal connection. Yeah, Weinstein. And, yeah. Yeah. And, and, but on the other hand, you know, in New York Magazine, Gabe Sherman was publishing all of those stories about Roger Ailes. I think that that's also an important antecedent that sometimes gets forgotten from these stories. And, um, and you mentioned Donald Trump. So, the, so okay. So, with respect to the Acela aspect of it, um, that exists, but I don't think that that's why those stories weren't published. I think they weren't published because, frankly, men were in charge and they didn't care. Yeah, but I, I and, and and then all, and they were and they were in order to do these investigative stories, you need to have the support of a newsroom that is experienced with it and that will be able to fight back when lawyers threaten you. And that's also why these investigations ran in publications like the New York Times and the Washington Post with big legal departments and the fortitude to, to, to withstand that. And so I think those organizations had to become sufficiently diverse and interested in these stories. And they had to see that people were interested in them. Um, and then people had to be willing to talk and the people being willing to talk part is what I would connect with Trump. Yeah, so that he, I even had a source say to me, I want to talk to the Washington Post because the Washington Post has been reporting incredible things about what Trump is doing. I think that referred to the Russia reporting. I was like, I have nothing to do with that. But cool. <laughs> but you'll take um, the, yeah. so, so, so people were, ex were reading, especially women, but not only women, were reading their experiences in a different way because of Trump and felt more empowered to talk to reporters, saw the press differently too, right? Saw the press as something heroic that was exposing Donald Trump. Um, but that said, you know, it also included people who probably didn't even have an opinion or didn't care about, you know, for example, the women who spoke to the reporters at the Washington Post about Roy Moore. Coming up, say what you want about James O'Keefe, but he was behind the most impactful Jeffrey Epstein media reveal of the last several years. We're going to get into that with Erin, but first, I want to talk about the top three most 2021 4th of July messages from Aracela Media. Hope everyone had a great 4th of July earlier this month, celebrating Independence Day with friends and family and barbecue and maybe some American flags and fireworks, whatever it is you wanted to do on a hot Sunday in July. But if you were like some in the media, it was a much more somber affair. You see, in 2021, July 4th is a little different. Here are the top three most 2021 media messages surrounding this 4th of July. Number three, the New York Times 
put out this headline, a 4th of July symbol of unity that may no longer unite. Yeah, take a guess about the symbol. So what is it about the flag that made it no longer a symbol of unity? Well, as Sarah Maslin-Nier writes, supporters of former President Donald Trump have embraced the flag so fervently at his rallies across conservative media, even during the January 6th assault on the Capitol, that many liberals worry that the left has all but ceded the national emblem to the right. Ah, Trump did it, of course. Number two, Ture tries to shock his way to the most 2021 title. Remember Ture? He's the former CNN and MSNBC host who had a Me Too incident of his own actually a little while ago. Well, now he is all the way back. Here was his July 4th take for the griot. This is a quote from his tweet. Fuck Independence Day. Not only were we not free, the whole reason the colonies wanted independence was because Britain was moving towards abolishing slavery. Why would black people celebrate a day so wrapped up in our enslavement? If you wanted to, you can make an argument that part of what makes Independence Day so impactful is the ability to write columns like this. But then it would be praising America. Tough one. And number one, Claire McCaskill's very serious new July 4th tradition. On Friday, as MSNBC's Morning Joe was coming to a close for the July 4th weekend, contributor and former Senator Claire McCaskill jumped in with a final comment. Quote, we're going to start a new family tradition in my family. On the 4th of July and every 4th of July going forward, we're going to watch that video that the New York Times put together of January 6th. The video she's referring to is the 40-minute video of the Capitol riot the New York Times released a day earlier. Hot dogs, fireworks, and making her family watch a 40-minute video of January 6th. Sure, why not? The best part was the three-second silence after her comment, as host Willie Geist clearly had no idea what to say to that nonsense, so just closes it out with, All right, Claire McCaskill, have a great July 4th to you and your family. And back to Oren, but first, the Fourth Watch podcast is presented by The First TV. The First is a new network for free speech and big ideas featuring Bill O'Reilly, Dana Lash, Buck Sexton, and more. It's a forum for new thought, new approaches, and an enlightening voice for a new America that embraces the founding principles and ideals that formed the greatest country on the planet. The First is free. No subscriptions, no credit cards, no trials, no censorship. Watch The First TV on Pluto TV, Distro TV, Apple TV, The First TV app, and more. Go to thefirsttv.com to learn more. And now, back to Oren Carmon. There's an instinct, I think. I, I look at a piece you wrote in November of 2019, um, which I think stood out as really one of the rare voices speaking out in, you know, for the, quote, shameful punishment of the uh, Epstein leaker, uh, who ABC and CB News, CBS News were both going to be punishing. This is a story about James O'Keefe, uh, who had leaked this video that he got from ABC of Amy Robach explaining uh, and really just sort of, you know, venting why ABC killed a, a story about a Jeffrey Epstein accuser. And, uh, and I think there's an instinct to say this is James O'Keefe's doing, you know, he's, he's, he's certainly, you got a lot of reasons to critique James O'Keefe. I I think this is one of his most important works he's ever done, um, was putting, getting this out there. Uh, Ashley Bianco was the one who was ultimately punished for this, although she says she wasn't the actual leaker to James O'Keefe, but you know, you wrote when news organizations are faced with a powerful man with powerful friends on one side and an accuser or accusers who might not have a pristine past. And the other, we know whose voice matters more. Accountability, transparency are supposed to be journalistic values, seeking to punish anyone who let the world know how the sausage is made or that some journalist tried to get the real story. However, ill chosen the platform is their opposite. Um, and, and I have to say, you know, the response to that story, um, you were really one of the rare ones who who had that response to it because I think they saw James O'Keefe and they associated him in a certain way and and maybe they associated Jeffrey Epstein on before this before the Epstein stuff really started going. 
Um, yeah. You know, and, and just, you know, and I think it. James O'Keefe threatened to sue me over that story. I can't quite remember, but I'm pretty sure he didn't like that story. <laughs> he does, yeah. Either. There was a correction yeah. on the bottom. So I'm sure it was some, some element <laughs> yeah. of describing him as, but like it was not about James ago. O'Keefe, you know, I mean, that, that's the thing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, and, and you're, yes, I do. I think that the, you know, the philosopher Kate Mann has this phrase. I think I, I cited her in my, what was the Washington Post afraid of peace? Hympathy. I think that there are incredibly high standards placed on stories that implicate powerful men, in part because of unacknowledged empathy that leaders of news organizations who are mostly men still, but even ones who are women who have succeeded in the system, um, they extend more empathy. They are more afraid of getting sued. They are, I mean, when you think about you know, it, it, the movement to reform criminal justice has, I think, led us to think critically about how we report on not powerful people who are accused of things, right? So right. I think, what is it? The AP is now saying like they're not going to publish people's um, mugshots when they've been accused of a crime but haven't had due process. Uh, but that was a practice that was going on forever. And people's names are on um, stories for they could have been wrongfully arrested. We we accept police narratives, uh, even when they are later disproven by, by objective fact like video. That is largely how the press treats allegations against people who are not known to them, do not, they do not identify with. Perhaps they are working class, perhaps they are people of color. Um, but a powerful media executive, a powerful media personality, an actor who people have warm feelings about. Um, I, I think, you know, Epstein just being a super mega rich guy with a lot of famous friends. I think that for, for reasons that are both pragmatic involving legal threats and for, um, you know, again, these unacknowledged empathetic instincts, Though getting a story like that published is was and and maybe still is really really hard. Yeah. Um. And and so I again I think some of those are understandable objective reasons. Like I don't feel like we have the story nailed. But just the this when you think about the standards that are placed on those stories, I think journalistic standards are important, right? But but some stories, um, if a if a if an editor doesn't want to run them, they will always find a reason not to run. Right. Right. And, and I will say, I mean, I think Jeffrey Epstein is a good example. We could probably spend another hour talking about Jeffrey Epstein. You published, uh, the high society that surrounded Jeffrey Epstein, um, looking at uh, some of his, uh, the black book, uh, of some of his past, uh, which Charlie Rose actually crossed paths there also. Um, I think there's a lot to go there, but I want to ask you about Andrew Cuomo because, you know, this is someone who was accused by several women of sexual harassment, including forcibly kissing, you know, sexual assault of, of an aide, uh, women that, that, you know, are on the record and, to their credit, New York Magazine, the New York Times, some notable exceptions. But you look at like uh, cable news, MSNBC, CNN, which, you know, lionized Andrew Cuomo uh, over last year to over COVID, you know, for the most part, it, it did not put any sort of pressure on, on Andrew Cuomo to address these allegations in any real way or put any resources towards covering these stories. And of course, you know, he, he by, by extension, it's now gone and he's just remains the governor and these stories just kind of fade away. Um, unlike stories like, say, Charlie Rose, where, you know, he immediately was essentially pushed out of all those positions. So what, what do you think it is yeah. that's happening there? I don't, I mean, I think that there is only so much that investigative reporters can do. Um, what, what TV producers can do, I, you know, I think I consider that outside my scope, but I think that it's not terribly different from what happened with Donald Trump. 
there was a lot of really credible journalism about allegations, and some of it is it's now in litigation. I mean, New York Magazine put E. Jean Carroll on the cover uh, a couple of years ago right. with an allegation of rape against the sitting president uh, from her memoir, and she continues to you know be locked in litigation with him. Um, the voters didn't care, or not enough of the voters. I mean, a few thousand voters in three states uh, having perhaps heard that journalism did not make a decision to, you know, did not make a decision based on that or it didn't change. It didn't dissuade them. Um, so I think that what we should be thinking, I hate to say this, right. But as a pragmatic observer, many of the resignations um, and the firings that we saw in me too, are a historical aberration. Hmm. Most often what happens is the person who comes forward's life gets ruined and the person who was accused, if they have sufficient tentacles in places of power or sufficient love from the public, they're going to be fine. Like they might have to apologize or something. And I think Andrew Cuomo took a page from Donald Trump's playbook and said, I'm not going to resign. I'm only going to kind of apologize. I mean, he did more apologies than um, than Donald Trump. And, you know, to be fair, he was accused of sexual assault. He was not accused of rape in the way, the way that Donald Trump was. But before that, Donald Trump was accused of sexual assault and said things like, you know, that these women weren't his type. Um, Andrew Cuomo um, made the same bet, which is that his voters would support him if even if he just sort of powered through. And that's a paradigm you know, that Donald Trump said, but did not really invent. That yeah. is the dominant paradigm, which well, is that these men keep their jobs. Well, let me ask you, though, because I, 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 I get where you're coming from. I, I know that. But I, I think it's not just the voters, though. I think I think Governor Cuomo made a calculation also about the media that, yes, there would be forces that would, would continue covering these stories and, and keeping them out there. Um, but if he wrote it out a little bit, they would just stop asking and they would. And they, they would forget. Yeah. yeah, I think it's possible, you know, the people who cover who covered the story come from so many, you know, because this is a podcast about media, you know that the media is not a unitary kind of yeah, entity. Right. The media so, is yeah. so it so let's take Andrew Cuomo. There are the beat reporters in Albany. I would love to know what they knew. Yeah. I you know, uh Jesse McKinley published a lot of the stories for the first time. But did he know anything before that? Did any of the other reporters know anything before that? I have no idea. This is not, I'm not trying to like imply that they knew and they covered it up. But Andrew Cuomo has been a powerful person for a long time. I'm really curious. Well, had anyone even heard rumors? Did they take it seriously? Um, you know, for, um, I'm, her last name is now escaping me, Lindsay. For Boylan. Lindsay Boylan. Yeah. yeah. For Lindsay Boylan to start tweeting I mean, this is the thing that, or should she wrote a, she's tweeted and she wrote a medium piece, right? Yeah. And then other people followed talking to reporters. I think the really interesting thing from a media perspective about these kinds of stories is that there is a reluctance to be the first person to, you know, you have to carry, carry the burden of, yeah. is this a legitimate story? Is this allegation credible? And so on. But once somebody outs themselves as having an allegation, then the burden is much lower, I guess, also from a legal perspective to just say, oh, well, this person tweeted this allegation. Um, so let's so that's one piece of the media. 
our coverage of Andrew Cuomo was led by Rebecca Traster, yeah. who is not an Albany reporter, who is a dear friend of mine who has helped me see the world in new ways constantly. Um, and is not indebted to access, like does not need access to anybody in Albany or elsewhere or in Washington, D.C. But people talk to her because she is a thoughtful person who is a great writer and has interesting ideas. Um, so it was not hard for her to to say, I'm going to report on this. So I actually, you know, and, and, and significantly, the Harvey Weinstein stories were not reported by Hollywood B reporters. No, no offense surely, to them. I mean, no that, offense that, to them. That's what honestly frustrates me so often is when you see these Hollywood stories now, like Hollywood people who have been covering Hollywood forever who say, you know, everyone knew, everyone knew. And, and, and it's like, well, so you, you were, you were covering these stories. You you obviously knew too. I mean, someone, you know, but, the idea but see, that these stories, I, I, I'm sympathetic to that because I do, I agree. I think like people just don't care. Honestly, that most people don't care about anything that happens to women. And they especially don't care to women who they can say, you know, they think deserved it. But I also want to say to in, in partial defense, that these stories are incredibly hard to report and they're incredibly hard to publish and you yeah. need sources and you need evidence. And sometimes there are sources and you think they might be credible, but they don't have evidence that rises to the level of publication or they will go on the record. And sometimes you have a publication. And I think, I think that Kim Masters wrote, I mean, I, I, Kim Masters had a couple of attempts to report on this. I mean, New York Magazine, this is a, this is a matter of public record. New York Magazine tried to do report on the Harvey Weinstein story. Um, this was in, uh, in Catch and Kill, the right. kinds of like spy shit that Harvey Weinstein did. Yeah. Um, the barriers to publishing these stories, especially before, but, uh, you know, they are obviously continue, um, are really high. And, you know, you could do what Gawker did, which is just kind of, and they did it with Jeffrey Epstein too, which is just kind of like throw shit at the wall. Maybe you have a little kernel of the truth there, but actually getting these stories dead to rights, you really don't want to mess up these stories. It's really, really hard. And it requires an investment of both uh, you know, time and skill. And it requires the buy-in from your organization. And we've talked about that. That is a very complex thing. Yeah. And so I agree that there's rumor mills, but I also think it's like, it's not so easy to just say like, you don't want somebody to just tweet it. No, no, exactly. You, you, you want it to come to light in the most rigorous way possible. But, and, and I think it, I think it takes burning some social capital that you know is going to come from this, um, at least at first, uh, particularly if you're early. The Fourth Watch Lightning Round is coming up, but first, whether the friendship RBG and Scalia had is something we can emulate in our culture today. Let me ask you about something completely different um, before we get to the lightning round here. And that is you are really one of the foremost chroniclers of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, and uh, you've written a lot about her. And I know you're very close with her. And I, I want to ask you, though, about um, kind of her friendship with uh, Antonin Scalia. It, it feels like you look at that now as like a, a thing of a media and culture of the past. I, I wonder if a person uh, who who is such a figure, um, uh, you know, of reverence on the left, had such an open friendship with someone who is such a figure uh, on the right. If if the if that would be as kind of celebrated today, if that were to sort of come about as it as it was even 10, 20, 15, you know, years ago. Um, yeah. What do you, what do I mean, think? I think the question is celebrated by whom, but, but I will, but no, the answer is no. And I, you know, there were people who were critical of the friendship between Scalia and Ginsburg when Ginsburg was nominated. Um, there were people on the left who were very excited to finally have a nomination. You know, there had been 
I'm trying to remember how many years, but of course there have been two Republican presidencies um, since Democrats had been able to nominate. I think Jimmy Carter didn't get any, right? I'm right. a little bit rusty on this history now. But this was the first nomination in a generation that a Democratic president was able to make. And, and there was, in the contemporaneous coverage, uh, quotes from people on the left saying, you know, well, what is this Scalia friendship? And when I think there was an anecdote from somebody saying, like, I was at I was at a party at her house and I saw Scalia and I crossed the room. So I, I think that there were certainly some people who were critical of the friendship at the time. Um Subsequently, I think she really, and he went along with this, but I think it was really her. She really talked about their friendship publicly a lot because I think she wanted to send a message about the functioning of the Supreme Court that was aspirational to say people who are on opposite sides of the aisle or interpretations of the Constitution can get along. In practice, though, she was not friends with Samuel Alito. She was not friends with Clarence Thomas. They had a very civil relationship. But her relationship with Scalia had to do with their love of opera, and she thought he was a really witty and clever writer. He made her laugh, and their families would get together. Um, and I don't believe that there was any substantial example of either of them changing each other's mind. But certainly, Ginsburg really wanted to send a message, to your point, of a kind of bipartisan friendship. But I, I often think that it's one that she... Again, I call it aspirational. She really wanted that to be the case, that the court could get along that way. In practice, I don't know if it really happened outside of their friendship. Yeah. Well, it's something I think aspirational, honestly, um, for a lot of the sides of the forces in the media. If, if Twitter had a little bit of that, that would be uh, that would be nice. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, I, let's move on to the, the lightning round here. Uh, Irene, where were you born? Israel. You're a senior correspondent for New York Magazine. What's one benefit and one cost of the job? Oh, um benefit uh my colleagues are incredibly brilliant cost um sometimes people can't remember which is new york which is the new yorker and which is the new york times <laughs> who's someone who's been not a, journalists right right now yes the, the audience uh who's someone who's been a mentor for you rebecca Traystar. who is one person you that you, that you really like professionally or personally that may surprise people oh oh this is really hard um in the spirit of RBG and Scalia. Yeah. Um, oh, you know, I really liked Caitlin Flanagan's piece about quitting Twitter. I often disagree with her, but I think she's an incredible writer, and I think she really put her talents to the right subject. Um, I laughed a lot, and I think she's, she's an incredible prose stylist, even if I often disagree with things that she writes. Yeah, that was great. Great piece. Uh, who is one person in the media you think is really interesting or talented that isn't getting enough attention? Oh gosh. Okay. I need to, I feel like I need to look at my Twitter follows. Um, you know, okay. Here's somebody who I think is incredible. I don't know. I think she gets some attention, but I always think she could get more. Caitlin Greenidge, uh, who is a novelist. She just published a book called Liberty, but she's also somehow manages to be the features editor at Harper's Bazaar. And she's publishing incredible stuff. Um, for example, Ta-Nehisi Coates um, and Amy Sherald and a third artist whose name is escaping me right now, um, she got them to talk about um, their creative endeavors in Harper's Bazaar. Um, and Ta-Nehisi Coates really does not give a lot of interviews. Um, she's been publishing ambitious essays. Um, anyway, I think she's super interesting. And I'm afraid that if I say this, a lot of other people are going to try to hire her. But um, I think she should come work in your magazine. <laughs> All right, nice. Uh, one year from today, what's one prediction for the media? Mm-hmm. I try to stay away from predictions. Sorry, I got to pass on that one. <laughs> All right. We'll leave there. Irene Carmone, thank you so much for doing this. That was great. 
Thank you for having me, Steve. I appreciate it. Thanks to Arin Carmon. Follow her on Twitter, just at Arin. That's at I-R-I-N. Remember, Fourth Watch, not just a podcast, it's also a newsletter. You can subscribe for free at fourthwatch.media. That's F-O-U-R-T-H watch.media. Join me. Let's build a better media together. If you like the music in this show, as I do, check out the artist who created it, Super Duper. That's Super Duper Music on Instagram. The song is Far From Falling. Download it wherever you get your music. And download and follow and like this podcast wherever you get your podcast. This was produced at Full Circle Studios in Addison, Texas. Back soon. Stay safe. Talk to you then.